Can a good person remain silent in the face of discrimination and injustice and still be a good person? I think that's a question many of us have wrestled with over the past few years, and it's one that my friend and colleague John Archibald addresses head-on in his new memoir, Shaking the Gates of Hell, a search for family and truth in the wake of the civil rights revolution. John was born in Alabama in 1963 in the midst of the civil rights movement. Just weeks before Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his iconic letter from a Birmingham jail, something that John wouldn't read until well into his adulthood because it's not something that white Alabamians like being taught in schools. In the letter, King squarely addresses the silence of the white church regarding the horrors of Jim Crow and segregation. Now, John comes from a long line of Methodist preachers, and as he read through old sermons by his father, Reverend Robert L. Archibald Jr., and compared it with a letter from a Birmingham jail, he realized that the man he loved and admired as one of the best men in the world had also been far too silent on issues of race. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and this week we've got a very special episode recorded as a live event with Books A Million to celebrate the launch of John Archibald's book. I'm joined by John, my colleague R.L. Nave, and the celebrated Alabama historian Dr. Wayne Flint for a frank discussion about race, sexuality, family, and accountability. This episode was recorded as part of a live event, so the quality may be a little different from what you're used to hearing on the show, but I promise this conversation is worth your time. I'm a little biased, but I think John's book is an incredibly important work for this moment right now. And if you don't trust me, trust my wife, Robin. She reads roughly 200 books a year, and I don't think I've ever heard her laugh and cry quite as much as she did while reading this book. Ultimately, this is a book about love and about finding your voice and the courage to speak out on important topics. And it's a lesson that I think many of us need right now. So let's shake the gates of hell and get started on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. John, before we get started, actually, t- tell us how you're feeling now on the uh, the eve of your book launch. Well, I, feel, I feel like I better stop chatting at the moment because I'm having too much fun. It's been a great day and people have been so nice and I can't believe it, you know, so maybe that'll stop. Soon. <laughs> uh-uh. But uh, it's great. It's a beautiful book. You know, I, I feel like we've been talking about it for a few years and your book covers, you know, five decades, it covers the civil rights movement, covers the LGBT rights movement, covers three or four generations of the Archibald family. There are so many stories and tough issues and humor throughout. But it seems like the through, through line really kind of deals with the need to use your pulpit or your platform, whatever it is, to confront injustice. While reading through your father's sermons of the civil rights era, you know, what did you learn about him? Uh, and what did you learn throughout the process about your own career as a columnist and a journalist? Well, you know, first of all, before I answer that question, you've got to know my dad. And, and my dad was one of the most principled men I've ever met in my life. And I always saw him as the strongest man I've ever met in my life and most courageous, which is why, you know, I, I held him and still hold him on a pretty high platform, you know. So uh, when I began to really look think about this quest it's because all my life I've wondered you know kind of in the back of my head what he was saying during the civil rights movement from the pulpit because he was saying the right stuff at home but when I found all his sermons I began to read through them and they were dated and 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 notated and all these things when I found them it was it became about well it's another line from from the letter from Birmingham jail where there's great disappointment there has to be great love and I think that's the through line really of the book not just about him, but about the church sometimes, and about about many things that I care deeply about that continue to disappoint me, and uh, and that and the issue of silence is what is what took me through it. When you talk about silence, I mean there were some major moments where he, you felt like he was silent and didn't use his voice in a way that he he could have. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was the disappointment because on the, you know, vitally important weeks that we know, whether that's the Children's Crusade or whether that's the Selma to Montgomery March or the or the 16th Street Baptist Church, Baptist Church bombing, important pivotal moments in the civil rights history in that place we like to think of as, as the cradle of the civil rights movement. It was missing. And he would talk about issues of trouble in the world and Asia and Africa and South America and all these places, but not outside the stained glass windows of his own churches, of, of the churches in Birmingham, Alabama, or Decatur, Alabama, Huntsville, Alabama. And so it took a while for me to understand the sort of conspiracy of silence that was ongoing in the white church at that time, which is exactly what Dr. King was talking about from jail. And uh, it took a long time for him to grow into his voice and get to a point where he was comfortable saying the things that he would say to us from the power of his own pulpit. And that's where I got really frustrated because, you know, I say it too much. I say it all the time in reference to this book, but if you've got a pulpit and you don't use it, what good is it? Um, but it's also about uh, growth. And it's also about understanding that we evolve been silent sometime about something important. And God knows I've said the wrong things sometimes about, I mean, I think any of my readers would tell you that, um, that we don't always say the right things. Uh, but it's also about growth and learning that because you screw it up once, it doesn't mean that you have to screw it up again. John, what, um, I mean, your dad was a principled guy, right? And he modeled the values, like you said, you know, at home in the community, what tangible difference would, you know, his espousing these things from the pulpit, do you think um, would have made, how would that have changed things? That's a very interesting question. Um, but uh, I think that if you go to a church or to a, to a, to a spiritual guide, to someone you uh, go to for advice on life or, or, or spirituality, and they don't tell you specifically um, the things that are important to make the world around you a better place to, for you to be a better person. If you lead, if you don't lead your sheep away from the wolves, then you're doing a disservice. The, the bottom line is, you know, if whether it's slavery or the promise of reconstruction, whether it's the racist Alabama constitution, whether it's the Jim Crow, whether it's the, the syphilis experiments, whether it's voter suppression, whether it's any of those things, none of it could have been allowed to happen without silence from white people who knew better and who thought it was wrong. And so to stand in a church every Sunday morning and to act as if all of the problems of the world are in faraway places. I find uh, I find it to be very, very troubling. I'd love to know what Dr. Flint thinks about that because he, uh, he of course, is a preacher himself and uh, as well as a historian. Yeah, as a, as a historian and a pastor, I mean, how do you navigate that line with what John was just talking about, about how, you know, I mean, the church has been a, has been a tool for social good, of course. I mean, Dr. King is obviously a pastor, but it's, it's been weaponized. Um, you know, it's been weaponized as a, as a tool of social control a lot throughout Alabama and the South and, and the United States history. So how, how do you negotiate those issues? Probably the toughest question an historian of Alabama can deal with because uh, 
I've written so heavily about 20th century Alabama. And my conclusion was that the most morally authentic people who lived in the state and who probably arguably loved it the most, if they were morally authentic, had to go someplace else. They had to move. If I were to list all the names of all the pastors, preachers, teachers, leaders of the state who are now in places like North Carolina and Virginia and uh, Kentucky, and even my own son and daughter-in-law in Seattle, they wouldn't come back to the South for any, anything at all. They wouldn't live in Alabama again. But I've got uh, another son and my son's married sister, so it's uh, the sister sisters-in-law are in Seattle and Morris. On matters of race and justice, all four of them think just alike. Two of them would never live anywhere but Alabama, because they're authentic people who are willing to take all the stuff that comes with living here. The other two will never come back. And that's probably the saddest part of writing about Alabama in the 20th century is what happened to your father. He was trying to be moral authentic. And as you point out, John, he had such a difficult time doing it, not because that's not who he was, but because if that had been what he was in the pulpit, he would have been in North Carolina or Tennessee or some other place. What a choice for your father to have to make. Right. And that and that's one of those things that bothers me throughout as well, because, you know, people, you know, every preacher of his era I asked about that said, you know, well, he was doing it for you or your family or to give you a better life. That was said in a kind way to try to make me feel better. And it doesn't make me feel better. What did they mean by that? One of the one of the. The professors I talked to about it, you know, said, you know, the bottom line is, if uh, as one of the preachers told him, if if you if I preach about desegregation this week, I got to find a new church next week, and that that was the the belief that as Dr. Flint is saying, there's 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 story after story of church of, of preachers getting crosses burned in their backyard, getting run out of town, getting essentially ostracized to New England, you know, because they couldn't. They, they no longer fit in. And you see it not just in the church. You see it w- with I mean, Charles Morgan. is a great example in Birmingham, who, of course, st- stood up and, you, you know, too late after the 60th Street church bombing, uh, you know, um, said absolutely what needed to be said. And one of the most beautiful speeches I've ever heard. Well, I didn't hear it, but I read. I read. And he, of course, had to leave as well. But, you know, it was just a it was. I believe a conspiracy of silence in the in the highest mm-hmm. levels of the the church, the bishop. I mean, it all started. The letter from Birmingham jail started, of course, because white clergy said, "Wait, it's not time. You know, you don't need to be doing this right now. Settle down here." And and Dr. King created that beautiful document that not only outlined reasons for di- and strategies for civil disobedience but excoriated the white church for its silence, and justifiably so. And most people in this community who grew up in it are like me and that they, you know, I was born in 1963 at that very moment. And I never knew about that letter until I was grown up and working and, 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 and the level of active um, suppression of what took place here is remarkable. And it's, it's one of the reasons I wanted to, um, you know, write this and, and you know, cause Wayne has always been, 
you know, my hero about history. But and so mine is, you know, it's it's like a remedial version of history compared to what he's written. But uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's it's my take on it. Yeah, I mean, amongst the leadership of the civil rights movement itself, I mean, we know that you know women were often not given prominence. Um, we know that folks like Baird Rustin were kept at arm's length because he was gay. They also were not peach- preaching about queerness and sexism from the pulpit. So, I mean, not not letting anybody off the hook, but what do you think that about the fact that, you know, a, a lot of the same sort of internal conversations in your household, like within your father himself, were also taking place among amongst po- folks that we hold up as, as, as icons of the movement? I, I think that's really interesting and it's a good point. But I also think that that's one of my main points, which is if the people who are the most revered by you or me or by, by society have failings, it doesn't render those people worthless or useless. It allows you to say, wow, if they can have these failings, I can easier look at myself and say, what are mine? And if, if I can see them in somebody I respect and I can, then I am more likely, I, I believe, I believe to say, look, I got to fix this too. And, uh, and I think that that's, I think it's really important for us to look at the people we admire and to know they don't have to be perfect. Coming up after the break, we hear more from John and Wayne about the importance of using your voice for change. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you've wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com newsletters. To take it out of the realm of history and, and into the present, you know, you talk about your, your father's evolution from civil rights to LGBT rights and your evolution um, and using your own voice on, on some of these issues. Right now in Alabama, we are seeing a lot of bills and elsewhere in the uh, in the country, we're seeing a lot of bills targeting trans people, uh, trans youth especially. You know, h- how do you think your father would be using his pulpit today and, and how should we be using ours? My father, I mean, to begin with, he, uh, he, he did come from the school where that keep politics out of the pulpit, which is kind of funny. And, and you know, in talking to, to William Nicholas, the professor who's kind of studied this, he has studied the Methodist Church, which is really big on that keeping politics out of the pulpit kind of thing, which he laughs at because when you make a choice to keep politics out of the pulpit, you're injecting politics into the pulpit. Uh, so I think he would still find it uh, difficult to actively talk about those things in sermons. I think he would, I, th- I think he would have a stronger voice than, than he did. I certainly do. I think he, he, he did care tremendously about people individually and uh, as groups. How would you handle it, Wayne? I think that's a really profound point, John. Uh, I think about John Rutland, who may, you may have been named for pastor in Woodlawn Methodist Church, one of whose members was Bull Connor. What, as a biblicist, a Methodist biblicist, do you preach about justice for the poor and the oppressed, which is the second most prominent theme in the Bible behind idolatry? And if you're going to preach on justice for the poor and oppressed, do you include blacks in Birmingham? When you're looking down at Bull Connor's face in your congregation. And, you know, we cherry pick religion 
We all do, not just your father, but we all cherry pick religion. We pull out of it what fits the culture in which we live, not necessarily the culture of our time, but we have a, a small culture that we make our own. And I can't think of a better example than the question that was raised uh, a second ago about transgender rights, about your brother, about homosexuality, about uh, all that. Did you know that in the Bible, which people like Will Connor quote all the time, Jesus does not have a single reference to homosexuality. Jesus does not have a single reference to abortion. But you know what he has a lot of reference to? Divorce, materialism, <laughs> adultery. Well, why don't preachers preach about that anymore? It's because they're looking at a congregation full of adulterers, <laughs> full of people who were divorced. Uh, the last time I checked, uh, by religious group, the largest rate of divorce in the United States is independent Pentecostals, and the second highest divorce rate is among Southern Baptists. Well, what pastor is going to get in front of a congregation now and denounce the sins that Jesus denounced? <laughs> denounce the ones Jesus didn't denounce. That's the way of keeping your congregation. You know, one of the things that struck me the most, uh, you know, th th this book, I mean, it does, it begins in, in the civil rights movement and ends in a different sort of civil rights movement about uh, LGBTQ rights. And, uh, and the Methodist Church, of course, right now is facing a schism over that um, and, and may very well split by the end of this year. Uh, so it would be very much on the minds of any Methodist preacher at this time. And if they don't, it's very interesting to me, if they don't, if they aren't in the pulpit talking about it, then they are doing a grave disservice to their congregation. Um, and, you know, they may not, may, may not all talk about it in a way I would approve of, but that's, that's a different matter. But what is very curious to me, um, not curious, really, I mean, it's, it's not even surprising, but the language that is being used now in the current um, schism about funding for gay and lesbian groups, about gay marriage, about all these things is mirrors the language and the, and the, and the lack of language sometimes that was being used in the fifties and sixties, the late fifties and early sixties about civil rights for black people. And it is uncanny how similar that language is sometimes. But we have a related question to that, John, from Judy Fraser. I hope I'm getting your name right, Judy. Did you research or address how other ministers, especially Methodists were addressing the civil rights movement? during the 60s as a Methodist preacher's kid during that time. She says she can't think of anyone except John Rutledge did, Rutledge. Uh, afraid of losing their church uh, and having to move. By um, and large, yeah, and there's a good bit about that. But there's, there's, in the book, there's, there are people who, who did preach, uh, including John Rutledge, who actually is it, an unusual story because he got through it without too much harm or punishment, although he did have a cross burned in his Yard. Um, but there are others who were relegated. Uh, what, ha what would happen was uh, they would get put on a list by the, the conservative West uh, Methodist Layman's Union, and they wouldn't be moved to a lot of the larger churches that wouldn't accept them. And, and so uh, some of them languished in small churches in Alabama, and some of them uh, and, and had crosses burned in their yard and that sort of thing. Uh, beautiful story from a uh, preacher in the, in, in the book, I think, 
about about his efforts to to do that and how he came to realize that it didn't matter to him at this point uh, uh, whether he was a big church or a small church that he had been called uh, to preach and, and it wasn't about climbing the the, the what I would call uh, the ladder of uh, uh, of Jesus LLC. It was about preaching the gospel. And so, uh, but by and large, most of the, most of the preachers did not dare. Uh, most of the district superintendents who were, who were you know, organizational, uh, the cabinet over the preacher, did not encourage them and discouraged them from doing so. And, uh, and so my dad is by no means alone. And I, and I, I would, I would venture to guess again, that my dad is, uh, you know, you know, the 99%, he's, <laughs> He, he, he's better than anybody I know, but uh, it still wasn't good enough. And that says a lot about who we are. And that gives us warning about what we should do. And, and again, I mean, you can't go back in time. You can't, I keep saying it, you can't go back in time, but you can look what happened back in time and you can use it to determine how you're going to be now. And that's, uh, that's where we learn from. I'm painting with a broad brush here and I may, tiptoe into into blasphemy, so I apologize. But Dr. Flint, I mean, you look back at the long course of Southern history, and, you know, you have the slave master's religion, um, and then you have the religion of liberation that uh, was kind of adopted by enslaved people, and how church evolved time after time after time, you know, whether it was Southern churches deciding that they were in favor of slavery or deciding that they were opposed to civil rights, and, and so many schisms along the way. Do these groups each worship the same God at this point? You're imprinted by the Bible, by your religious traditions, and by your culture. And the question is always, can you transcend one of those? Because you can't live in all three of them. Uh, you decide which you're going to live in, what kind of balance you're going to live in. Uh, my favorite story along that line is Ray Whatley who was from the deepest part of the Black Belt, just outside of Monroeville, Alabama, just across the border in Clark County. Uh, the, the town, the little Black Belt town he was born in, was named for his family. Uh, he was a Methodist minister. He went away to Birmingham Southern and then to Duke and uh, came back to Monroeville Methodist Church, where the single most important layman was... Uh, a guy named, uh, his fictional name is Atticus Finch. Harper Lee's father was head of the, the pastor's relations committee. Uh, Harper Lee's sister, Alice Lee, was the most beloved person in southwest Alabama and later head of the law firm that her father had founded. And uh, Coley Lee and Alice Lee told Reverend Wadley, who was pastor from 1951 to 1953, right out of seminary, that uh, he wasn't preaching about personal salvation enough that he was, he was talking too much about social justice. And they warned him that if he kept doing this, they were not going to keep him as pastor. Well, he kept preaching, and he then was moved, removed by the bishop and given a tiny little church, St. Mark's, which was just blocks away from Dexter Avenue, a Baptist church. And he founded the Alabama Council on Human Relations, the most liberal organization in the state at the time. 
and he was elected president and Martin Luther King was elected vice president. Meanwhile, Sam Englehart, who was a powerful senator from Macon County, one of the most powerful senators, twice blocked him from the bishop appointing him to black belt churches because he said, all you're going to do is stir up those black belt churches and run all the Methodists to the Baptist. And I don't need to tell you the end of this story. Uh, he wound up his career in another state. But when he wrote me this letter, it was the most tortured letter. It's not that he wanted to leave. He wanted to stay in the black belt. That, those were his people. That's where he came from. Heart of his heart, soul of his soul. Uh, That's, when he wrote that letter, it just broke my heart. I got lots of the letters like that, too, and it's, it's, it's just tragic. I mean, it's, it's people doing the right thing and being punished for it time and time and time again. But I want to comment about one of the comments in the, in the chat. Pamela Powell says, you know, Unitarian churches in the South have always preached against racism. And that's true. And they marched in some, and people marched in Selma to Montgomery and were killed. And the Unitarian churches have stood up for decades and been a model that should have been followed. And as you're talking about, there's such fear of the Methodists leaving to become Baptists or becoming whatever that um, that they lose themselves um, by and not say anything at all. And, you know, I was looking at a study just the other day that was talking about, you know, there's the, the, um, the, the you know, there's a, the big word these days is the nuns, the people who claim no, no religion and that the numbers have risen um to a level that's equal now to the evangelical churches. As many people in America claim no religion as claim an evangelical religion, which we think of as a huge political power base. Um, so, and I can't help but believe a lot of the, uh, the, the migration from the church is because uh, it's easy to stand up and, uh, and say, uh, you know, be a good Samaritan, but it's really hard to justify doing no more than that. And I think that a lot of people, particularly young people these days, um, would really like for their churches to represent their beliefs in ways that are tangible and that actually go about helping people. We have seen more of a reckoning over the last year, uh, even in even in the pulpit, on issues of race uh, in America with, with the killing of George Floyd and the protests that followed after that. You know, you wrote this book two years ago, John, um, and you've watched the world change a lot in the last year, uh, sometimes from from a Zoom window. Uh, if you were writing this book today, you know, as you've been rereading it and listening to it, are, are there things that you would write differently? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I would put in more references to that because, I mean, I do believe that it's, I think you're right in that people have demonstrated an ability used to use voice in the last year, you know, maybe more than, I mean, at a, at a faster pace than, than they have for years to come. And, and it may be oversimplified, simplistic to say this, but, you know, I, when I, in the, in the wake of the, the George Floyd killing, when we looked out and saw pictures of, of white people kneeling in Mountain Brook elementary school, I mean, who would have, I mean, that's mind blowing, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we, I don't know how many would kneel today, but they did it, you know, after the, the event. But so, I mean, I think that there has been a real awakening in terms of, in terms of realizing that if we want to change and be better people, we have to, 
we have to be able to say it, and which is great. It's absolutely great. But I honestly said the words I wanted to say, and I and I I don't think they change because because some people find it easier to have voice. And it's still, I mean, we can see now, I mean, it's not that the need stops. I mean, because it continues all the time, every Sunday and every Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, Friday too, Saturday also, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the fact that a lot of, you know, in a lot of very conservative places, you know, you see black lives matters signs, outside the churches, which, you know, would have been unthinkable three or four years ago. Um, but I mean, does that, does that basically prove your point about like why white silence is bad? Because when, when white, when, when we saw white folks, especially stop being silent after George Floyd, things started to happen. Right. And the more you can talk about it, the more you're able to talk about it. And the more each one of us, you know, I mean, in the, in the book, you know, I talk about somebody's asked me, there's a part in the book where I'm seemingly really, really upset with myself and, and flogging myself because I could not, because I felt such guilt for not ha- ever telling anybody my brother was gay. Right. And, and they're like, why are you beating yourself up over this? Cause you know, a lot of people didn't come out or whatever. And, and you know, I think it's because, I mean, it wasn't that I was necessarily hiding it. It's just that I always found a reason why it should happen. But once you start saying it, then all of a sudden it becomes easier to say. And all of a sudden everything becomes easier to talk about. I mean, there's a, a, there's a sort of a, you know, once you break the seal, then all of a sudden you're free to talk about it. And um, and I think that's a big part of it too. And we've seen it lead to some real tangible change. I mean, whether it's the toppling of Confederate monuments that that have been up for you know a century, or in some places, real police reform, white people lending their voice to you know to to black voices who have been fighting for this for. For centuries, uh, you know, not, not forgetting that fact, it does seem to to have made a real difference, and, and hopefully that that momentum could continue. Doctor Flint, which one of us needs to be the cynic on this one? <laughs> uh, I think our cynicism is in about equal parts. <laughs> but I mean, for, we do talk about progress. We do talk about monuments coming down in Birmingham across the state, but we also look at the, the Alabama legislature, which is. What considering again the even more draconian measures to keep them up? I mean, it's uh, it's 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 never going to end until I mean you know until enough people feel like it's important to talk about and to use their pulpits for change, um, and that's not anywhere close to happening. John, I uh, had a conversation with. Uh, an intermediary who was talking about changing the names of six buildings at the University of Alabama. And what they were doing is running the idea by me of uh, this is the name here and this is what that person represented. And then over here we have uh, a far more racist person. And so uh, the question they wanted me to answer was, 
which of these are close enough to moderation to keep the name the same, and which of these are so radical racist that we need to change the name of the building. And I said, well, suppose we move away from the monument issue and the names of the buildings issue, and we take your total endowment, which is $1.9 billion at the University of Alabama, and then we take Auburn's endowment, which is about $1.7 uh, nearly $1.7 billion, and let's take 0.01% of your endowment and invest it in historically black colleges and in uh, every student at the University of Alabama and every student at Auburn having one semester in his senior year when he's a pharmacist or uh, in the Alabama law school, he'll go down and spend a semester being tutored in the world of the black belt. Wouldn't that be a better solution to our problem than changing the names of the buildings or, or removing the monuments? And I'm not getting any takers on that at all. <laughs> None. Nobody. And, you know, I, I think about both the University of Alabama and Auburn are right on the edge of the black belt. Well, for more than half the histories of both those universities, no black student was admitted, admissible to those, those schools. And yet most of that money was either coming from planter families in the black belt whose sons went to those two schools or else they went to the corpus of money that was created when those black belt planters sent their sons to Birmingham and they became CEOs of the corporations. Now, I won't be a cynic when somebody tells me we're really about justice because I ain't convinced that changing the names of, of buildings and uh, removing monuments has much to do with justice. It has to do with sanitizing ourselves and our reputations. And that's cynicism. If you can match that, John, go for it. Well, you know, <laughs> I've always argued that there's a very fine line between cynicism and idealism, but I'm not sure if anybody knows what I'm talking about, but, but I'll leave it. But, uh, but I believe it in my bones. It's also realism. And uh, so I'll take it. There was a, there was a comment that was just, well, you're asking the questions. I, I get interested in the comments because there's some good ones in there. Uh, we have a question from Ruth Cook. Does your book touch on what role the Catholic churches in Alabama played and play now? And, and if it doesn't touch on it, maybe Dr. Flint can talk on it a little bit. Uh, there's, there's some mention of Catholic action, but not, not much. It's, it, it's more uh, in, in, in my dad's, but you know, the Catholic church, it, I do think for the most part did a better job in that period and in many periods than, than the rest with the exception of the Unitarians and some other. The Catholics had a big advantage, John, because they have a Pope. And I know it's not right for a Baptist to say that, but uh, if you've got authority coming from the Pope, uh, the puny question of what the culture is like inside a state is a lot less important than it is with self-governing congregations like Baptist or even bishops like you Methodist have. And, uh, I would just uh, remind everybody that on the last night of the settlement of Montgomery March, in the run-up to the passage of the, of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, which uh, the state of Alabama is doing everything it can possibly do to uh, stop and rewind, the last night 
by the marchers, spent the night at the big Catholic center, uh, which has a school which black kids could attend in Montgomery, Alabama. Can you imagine with Governor Wallace and the governor's mansion, uh, the reaction to Catholics, uh, the governor was a Methodist, I remind you, the reaction to hundreds, perhaps even thousands of black and white people on the campus of a Catholic school, which is the only real place they could have been except in the African-American community. And that was on the last night uh, before confronting Wallace out in front of the Capitol. And I think you're absolutely right. I think the Catholic Church was much more active. And Catholic priests and nuns, for obvious reasons, they don't have wives and children. Mm -hmm. Think how much easier it is to be a martyr when you're not thinking about a wife and two or three kids. Well, your dad was thinking about you. Or a husband and two or three kids. Yeah, correct. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Um, you were you were talking about the Methodist, uh, the the, the Bull Con you know Bull Connor was a Methodist, which is uh, and and George Wallace was a Methodist, and you can go down the list uh, of those people, and it, which you know because and, and we were joking earlier because well I was joking you might not have been joking because because I made the joke in the book that uh, that 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 uh, Methodists or Baptists that can read, but uh, <laughs> you might have been. Uh, you might have been getting back at me, but I would, I guess, you know, you did point out that Atticus Finch was uh, a Methodist and, uh, and I will point out that Clark Kent was a Methodist. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Superman. That's who you're talking about. Superman was okay. a Methodist. Yeah. But it doesn't make up for Bull Connor. Jones <laughs> <laughs> had a Bishop between himself and Bull Connor. And if it had been a Baptist church, the pastor would have just been without a job the next day. First sermon he preached like that, there was no bishop to protect him, like Ray Whiteley was protected by his bishop. Well, your Clark Kent joke, John, is a good reminder that I mean, we, we've talked through a lot of serious topics tonight, but I mean, there are sections of your book that are just plain funny. You know, you've got great stories about your dad, uh, you've got great stories about your family, you killing off an entire line of snakes uh, at one point. Um, and, and I think it does kind of help to, to think about some of those things. You know, I look back at the last five years and I see a lot of my age cohort and my friends wrestling with their relationship with their parents. You know, I, I struggle with my own ideological differences with my father. Um, and, and you kind of lay out a template of, of how to hold your parents accountable or anyone in your life accountable, whether it's children or, or other loved ones, but while also seeing them, you know, kind of as, as the man in full uh, and recognizing their, their faults and, and their foibles. Um, what, what are your advice to people who are struggling with that right now? Oh, that, well, that's, that's, that's tough. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think that it's easy for me to look at my dad because I love him so much. Um, and I think that when you start, by realizing how much you love somebody, then, then you can start to, uh, to, to do those things, but it's, but it, it's easy to say that, but it's really hard to do. But, and, and you know, when I, when I, uh, when I, I mean, you know, it's my whole philosophy of writing is a lot like my philosophy of life in that if, 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 you know, 
I want to make you, I mean, I want to make you think and I want to make you feel these things, but I, I want to make you laugh too, because if you don't laugh, then, then you won't stay with me and we, and you'll get mad at me because I'll say things that will make you mad. But if I can make you laugh too, then you'll, you'll give me another shot. And I think the same thing is true. Um, in you know, in dealing with other people, I mean, you know, I make you mad all the time, John, but, and you make me mad all the time, John, but you know, you can say, get, you know, you can also say something that makes me laugh afterward and then we can see each other's humanity, uh, even on those tough days when you're cursing the Alabama Crimson Tide football team with one of your wild assumptions. But um, just belief in the team. <laughs> but um, uh, it, but you know, I, I don't know if that's a if that makes sense as an answer or not. But I, I mean, I think that the key is finding ways to see each other's humanity and realizing that someone's opinion about politics does not define them. Uh, well, someday seems these days sometimes it does, but 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 try to and you know that's the whole reason I set this book up in what some would consider a weird structure, in that you know chapter is a search for what for what I'm trying to find out, and the next chapter is a is a, a lighter chapter or a story something that has stories and humor in it because I want you not only to see this thing that's bothering me so that I'm trying to track it down, but I want you to see my father in the fullness of himself, the way I saw him, the way I still see him, the reason I can, um, you know, you know I, the reason I can question is because I know him so well. And, I, and you know, I think that, that seeing the fullness of people is sort of a lost art. And we have to try to do that more. Dr. Flint, we're seeing some comments um, one from Laura Lee Funk that points out that, you know, it can be very difficult to, to challenge your parents and, and your elders uh, in Southern culture without being dismissed or, or perceived as kind of dishonoring and disrespecting your elders. Do you have thoughts on how to, um, to engage uh, your, your loved ones and, and other members of your community in ways that um, won't just get you shouted out of the room because of, you know, Southern respect. Yeah. Well, don't read Harper Lee's novel, Go Set a Watchman, and then uh, have a 200-page <laughs> uh, profane denunciation of your papa when you go home. Uh, that's <laughs> uh, my dad and I had these kind of arguments when I was growing up, uh, especially in the 60s and 70s. And uh, I think it helps if you have a deep respect for each other. And although I realize it's uh, considered to be lowbrow these days, but uh, I don't think you could do better than the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 1. Uh, for those of you who dropped out of the church, it reads like this, Judge not that you be not judged, for with which judgment you judge you shall also be judged. And I think that is no less true of racist parents than it is self-righteous daughters like Jean Louise Finch and Watchman. So I think that uh, it's only from our self-righteousness that we have these denunciations. Uh, people who are not self-righteous but consider themselves sinners 
in the hands of an angry God and a God of grace and their fathers and mothers, the same kind of people, then you can have conversations. But if what you're doing is speaking from a sense of your enlightenment and their stupidity, then it's hard to have a meaningful conversation. John, people are demanding it in the comments and, you know, we've given some people so much seriousness. So, so maybe just tell us the snake story. I know they can go read it in, in the book, but tell us about the moccasin massacre. <laughs> you know, I, I see a couple of my kids in the chat. They might be able to tell it better than me, but uh, it's a long, long story, but I'll, it culminates in uh, my wife uttering some pretty serious profanity. So you'll stay tuned for that. But uh I uh, I killed a, a water moccasin near our cabin in North Georgia, and uh, I came home and um, and I thought it was fat because it uh, uh, well it was fat. I thought it was I thought it had eaten something, and we would we would skin the snake because that was a great idea, and we would you know have some kind of biology lesson where we figured out what it had eaten. So I began to with my little Swiss Army knife, I cut into it. <laughs> Pull down and this baby snake popped out in a, in a, like a, a placenta and and Alicia, my wife, said, "Oh my God, how did you know where that was?" And I said, well, "I know a lot of things you don't think I know." And so she's like, "Oh!" And then all of a sudden, all these other little baby snakes started pouring out, and they were like ten and eleven, twelve, and they're fifteen. And I'm like, and I'm cutting their heads off with my. Swiss Army knife and my children and my daughter's like four years old. She's like this far away, just transfixed. And so I end up killing these 30 snakes and it's the most bloody gruesome thing you've ever seen. And Alicia, um, my wife and Drew, my oldest son have left and are in the, uh, in the bushes vomiting together as mother and son. And, uh, and the two youngest kids, Ramsey and Mamie, are just transfixed. And so, um, so we leave, and uh, and we, I was really, really concerned, and uh, that we had, uh, you know, really poisoned their minds with this bloody massacre. Um, I didn't know what to do, but we got in the car, and and the first person to speak up was my son Ramsey, who said, um, "Well, first he named it." Um, the moccasin massacre of 1998 and the second thing he said is can we go to the wagon wheel which is the meeting three just up the street so i think that we were uh we were okay but alicia i won't tell you what she said i'll have to read the book to find that out um we have a question from izzy gold uh our, our colleague at al.com now that you've gone through the process would you write another book uh and if so what would that one be about uh, well, the answer is I sure hope so, because um, I I enjoyed the process, and I think that uh, I, I think that um, I think I learned a lot from the process, and and uh, it might be uh, yeah I, I would like to do it again. I'm working on a few ideas, but I'm not giving them up, Izzy. I'm not giving them up. Wayne. RL, do you have any last questions? I guess it's kind of the question of uh, what would you have done differently? I mean, we, you know, we have talked about um, the fact that people, congregations are not powerless in, you know, moving 
the leaders of their churches to act and to to think differently? What would you have done differently in sort of making a case to your dad about the urgency of the moment? And just what should people who are in those situations now be talking to their leaders about? By the time I was grown, I feel like my dad's voice was strong. And I feel like he, he probably did more talking to me to make me feel more able to speak than I could have done for him by that time. So in a lot of ways, I think that the, the and I may have mentioned this before, sorry if I did, but um, I mean, I do think the most important part of it is, is to learn and grow along the way and be able to say that. What I would do differently, um, I would have asked him far when he was alive, I would have had this conversation with him a long time ago. And I would have found you know, I would have been able to talk to him personally about what was going on. The, his actions along the way are what was so incongruous with, you know, he was adamant about going to public schools and integrated schools and integrating the scout troops and, and bringing black ministers in to talk, to, to work in the community together with each other in, in unison. So I knew how he felt about these things. And so the only explanation is, is, is exactly what Dr. Flint has said about why, why the silence existed but I would love to have gotten that from his mouth. That's my biggest regret. And there's a question about maybe he felt like, uh, or a comment, maybe he felt like he was passing truth on to you. And, you know, I, I believe that. And I believe, you know, one of the last conversations we had before he died, I had just written a story about, I can't remember what exactly the story was, but it was a, a serious story about racial inequality. And he could barely talk and he'd had strokes and cancer and Parkinson's and he was lying in hospice and he reached out and grabbed me and said, I'm proud of you for taking on. And he always called it the race question, which, you know, I debate in the book, but I'm glad I'm proud of you for taking on the race question. And, and it kind of made me uncomfortable because I, you know, I was writing a story. I'm a columnist. That's what I do. That's what they pay me to do. I write opinions. So it's not that hard. At the same time, I think I think what he was saying is he, he appreciated that I had been able to develop a voice that he had not been comfortable. And so I tell myself, you know, I go through moments where I, I really, really torture myself about this, about A, am I being tough enough on him? And B, am I being too tough on him? Um, because he was, he was a special man. And I tell myself that the ultimate goal of this book is something that would be his ultimate goal as well. And uh, and I think he would be comfortable with that. Sylvia wrote, maybe he felt he was passing the truth on to you since he couldn't spread it. I think that's, I want to think that that's accurate. I, I, I hope, I hope that that's accurate. Well, I, I can speak as a colleague and, and there's a, a number of colleagues in the comments who, who have made similar sentiments, but you know, you use your voice not only in, in this book, but in your columns and your reporting and your podcasts and your video work that, you know, you, you use it well. I, I think he would be very proud. And I know that we are all proud to be your colleagues. And thank you for, for not being silent in this moment and, and for writing this book. And we want to thank Books a Million for hosting this wonderful event. I know everybody who was attending it got a copy of the book, but, you know, go out and buy another one anyways. And let's see if we can get John Archibald up at the top of the list uh, and, you know, buy a copy for your dad, buy a copy for your mom, uh, your siblings, birthday presents, all that fun stuff. 
I do, I, you know, I don't I probably don't say this enough, but I do want to uh, thank AL.com too, because none of it would have happened if they hadn't, you know, let let me, you know, take off to write it and let me come up to take off to do this fellowship I'm on now. And, um, you know, I, I t- maybe I take them for granted sometimes and they're sponsoring this as well, but the amount of support they've given me is crazy. And, um, and I appreciate it. And Reckon, I love Reckon. And, you know, the things you guys are doing would never have been contemplated in, in earlier days. I mean, just the conversations we're able to have about about race and gender and uh, LGBTQ issues and trans issues. You know, the whole it's, it's, it's a whole new world for an Alabama media institution uh, uh, to be able to talk about these things in ways that the state so desperately needs. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we hope to see you real soon. Yeah, thanks for coming. I really appreciate this. And that's our show, folks. Thanks so much to R.L. Nave, Wayne Flint, and John Archibald. You can find John's book, Shaking the Gates of Hell, A Search for Family and Truth in the Wake of the Civil Rights Revolution, at Books A Million or at your favorite local bookstore. If you like our show and you want to learn more, you can join the conversation, our weekly newsletter, by signing up for it at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. This episode was produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. Our original theme music was written and recorded by Alexander Ritchie. And the episode was edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team at Edit Audio. If you've already subscribed to our show, but you haven't reviewed it or shared it with your friends yet, please do. It'll help us grow our audience so we can tell more great stories from the South. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.